You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review to begin a new week on Monday, February 25th. And February 25th is a special day for us here at the Hurwitz family. My uh, son Joshua was born seven years ago today. He's our middle son. And boy... What a scary day that was. Uh, Wow. (laughs) I can't believe it was seven years ago. Basically, he was born at home because the serendipitous kid he always has been, including when he popped out, he just just came out of nowhere. Um, You know, my wife had her first son two years before, our oldest, and it was 35 hours of labor. Took forever. So, you know, here we weren't in a rush to go to the hospital just because, gosh, it, it was, uh, you know, we knew we had another 30 hours ahead of us. But instead, it's almost like it went from less of a degree of labor than, that, that they say you go to the hospital for, the 555 rule, to the head essentially just coming out. You know, I, I called 911 and... I was uh, prepared. I just like, you know, started rolling up my sleeves. She was lying down and I was about to deliver it. I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I would have to do something. But um, literally, I mean, couldn't have come a second early, second later. Uh, Otherwise, I would have had to deliver the baby. But the EMTs burst in and they took care of him. But wow, that was uh, that was wild. The wild day. So happy birthday, Joshua. Uh, I got to take him snow tubing tonight, so I got to get in everything today, which is why I apologize ahead of time if I might sound like I'm in a little bit of a rush because this is going to be a big week with Congress back in session. But you know what's even bigger? See, when Congress goes on vacation, there's one branch of government that never goes on vacation, and that is the judicial branch of government. See, sometimes you think, all right, okay, you know, the president's kind of being low-key lately, which in itself, by the way, is a problem. If you want to make the case for an emergency, which we certainly believe in, and we ourselves have made the case, but boy, Mr. President, you better make the case yourself. He's been awfully quiet. Congress has been quiet. So I figure I'm going to have a nice, quiet weekend. But the thing is, you never know what's going to pop out of a single district judge, because at any moment— Based on any number of thousands of cases where they grant standing to random organizations you never heard of to put a political issue in court, they could suddenly render an opinion that literally shatters thousands of years of civilization overnight without firing a shot, without any public debate, without any input, without any elections. And we're to regard that as the final word on the matter, unless it gets appealed. In which case, the Supreme Court is the final word, or until another liberal lower court comes back for more, because they could always rule in their way in this one-way ratchet. You know what I'm referring to? This judge, a Republican-appointed judge, Gray Miller 
from the Southern District of Texas, appointed by George W. Bush, who rules that women are essentially men too. And there's no difference whatsoever with regards to men and women as it relates to the potential obligation to defend our nation in combat. And therefore, any draft or any selective service that could lead to a draft that would only require men and not women to sign up violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. The title of my article today is Judge Cross's Red Line, meaning you would think this would be a red line that would awaken our movement from its slumber. But it appears I'm, that I might be one of the only ones writing about it. It looks like D.C. McAllister at The Federalist wrote a nice article on this as well. I can't find too many other people addressing this. Evidently, it's not a big issue. So evidently, even before we start this discussion, I think we could conclude that this will not be that galvanizing moment to propel us out of our slumber, propel us out of this boiling pot of water rather than sitting in there in this slow cook. And you know what? The cook isn't even that slow anymore. Yet it appears that there is nothing that courts can do that will awaken us from our slumber. Sometimes when I start talking about certain themes and I'm like, all right, you know, I did enough on that. I already did two shows on this theme of conservatives without a vision and let's move on to some other themes and then once i hone in on something it just it keeps coming up again and again and really everything we want to talk about today almost everything feeds back into this narrative of why we have this asymmetrical outcome where the left always gets what they want on culture. They always get what they want in the courts. Yet we're always shafted. It's because we don't have a conservative movement. You can't get to a destination if you don't have the destination, if you don't believe in it. See, the reason why the left bats a thousand with judicial nominees, and we bat 300, and even then it's subjective, is simply because we don't have a conservative legal movement. Meaning it's not like, oh, you know, man, they just fooled us. We thought we had something. There's nothing fooled. We know exactly what the story is. If you don't have a guy up front that you know is like you in their understanding of the 14th Amendment as well as other things, not just in theory, but in practice, he will be a problem to varying degrees. Look at what we've learned from Kavanaugh. Everything I predicted about him turned out to be correct. But guess what? We still don't learn our lessons. We don't learn our lessons. What am I talking about? So there's a whole bunch of things going on. Obviously, we have this crazy Republican-appointed judge that violates, in my view, one of the most natural of natural laws of 
affording and according women the accommodation that we are going to allow you to be a woman, let women be women, and let them be defended and not forced to fight like a man. There's that news which we're going to unpack. There's also the issue of um, this judicial nominee, Naomi Raye, who is just nominated, or not just nominated, but possibly this week is going to be voted out of the Senate Judiciary Committee to sit on the second highest court in the land. She's going to actually replace Kavanaugh on the bench. And there are some rumors I'm hearing that because of her profile and everything, she would naturally, within the next number of years, be on the fast track to potentially be a Supreme Court justice. I mean, anyone to begin with who would fill the Kavanaugh seat on the second highest court, I mean, that's the feeding court into the Supreme Court more than any other, the D.C. Court of Appeals, because of the prominence of the issues they deal with being the appellate court from D.C. But certainly the fact that, you know, I'm hearing rumors just because of her persona, her bio, you get her on that court, she might be a Supreme Court justice. So, in general, in general, you guys understand that I don't care about this whole thing. To me, the judiciary is so irremediably broken. You are so not going to fix it. The more we obsess about judicial nominees, the more we countenance and indulge and legitimize this notion of judicial supremacism. And we expend so much political capital on a 1% solution, which, as you're going to see, doesn't even wind up being a 1% solution because we don't even appoint all good judges, even when we're in power. Rather than using that political capital just to fight back against the notion of judicial supremacy across the board, which is the real solution. Okay, so that is, that's my view. But nonetheless, I'm going to indulge this issue that if you are going to obsess about appointing better judges and judicial nominees is everything. I mean, nothing else matters. We, we need to elect Republicans who will destroy us on immigration, they're going to destroy us on budget, they're going to destroy us on health care. They're going to, again, legitimize judicial supremacy, but... At least we're going to confirm good judges. Okay, so that's that's the big thing. So if that's going to be your game, you better be 100% certain that if you have one choice and you have the ability to get them in because you have the votes in the Senate, you better believe I'm going to demand we have evidence they're going to be a solid person. Really, every judge should be like that, but certainly an appeals court judge and certainly the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Okay. I mean, the second highest court in the land, I mean, we're going to want guarantees. But this woman who was nominated, I will tell you, there are some concerns. And the concerns speak to the underbelly of this entire issue that we're going to pull the scab off of. We're going to pull the scab off of this schism 
on this conservative it's really both the conservative political movement and conservative legal movement because there really is no conservative political and certainly conservative legal movement it's all a libertarian movement and when i say libertarian i don't mean a traditionalist libertarian i mean a hippie cato open borders pro criminal pro abortion pro gay marriage now, abortion is a little different because it's still such a pro-life constituency, so they have to kind of like make pretend. All the other issues, they're out in the open. Oh, out in the open. And that's the movement we have here, and it's time we expose this. Now, I hate to flip around on different things here, but let's first go back before we get to this nominee and discuss you know, the problems, the politics of Senator Josh Hawley whom I, I applaud for trying to put the brakes on this and just raise some concerns. I want to enter one other piece of evidence to our case here. Well, I guess since we're talking about judges and courts, so we'll act like a courtroom. CPAC, right? The big event coming up this week where it's the big conservative gathering of the year. But as you guys well know, it's really a bunch of nothing. It actually embodies the problem. They're inviting Van Jones, an admitted communist, to speak about criminal justice reform. Because as you well know, CPAC is run by the American Conservative Union, which is one of the driving forces behind jailbreak and this pro-criminal agenda. By the way, they're open borders too. They had to pipe it down because they have to be pro-Trump also. But they supported the Gang of Eight bill. So it's basically going to be one big kumbaya where you know Van Jones gets up there and say, hey, who could ever imagine me speaking at CPAC? But this is what happens when we do great things together and when we agree. Because the movement has become a radical anarchist libertarian movement divorced from traditional conservatism. And what the Constitution meant by the people who drafted it, as well as the people who drafted the 14th Amendment in 1867. This is what we become. Like I said last week, we, we don't even understand what it means to be a conservative. It's a conservative to be, oh, we, we appointed more gay people than you did. Uh, uh, we let out more criminals than you did. So we're, we're, we're better for the blacks. And I say that sarcastically because you know that's, that's their political mind, but really it's, it's bad for everyone, um, most importantly for blacks living in inner city areas that are going to be affected by it. This disgusting agenda. It's these same people behind this conservative legal movement. Gone are the days of Scalia, Bork, and Ed Meese where they were concerned about the cultural problems with the judiciary. Let me summarize what is going on in this legal conservative movement, which is, again, a libertarian movement. The driving forces behind the right-leaning legal movement, so to speak, are libertarians. People, for example, who work at Cato Institute. I mean, hardcore, hardcore. They're, they're, they're pro-criminal, open borders, pro, pro-abortion, homosexual agenda, transgender, you name it, they're for it. Any decivilization agenda. There's areas of agreement on certain issues we're going to meet up with as opposed to the hardcore left. But more and more, they're becoming progressives. Then you have groups like the Judicial Crisis Network and the Federalist Society that 
they they might include some of those elements, but you know they have to appeal to mainstream conservatives, so they'll be more subtle about it. You and I both know, especially given this decision from this judge, to say that women are men too. When it comes to the problem of the judiciary, we understand that it's a much more severe problem, the courts being used as a sword against legitimate laws and policies, transforming our society, social transformation without representation, whether it's immigration, whether it's abortion, whether it's marriage, whether it's sexuality, whether it's social norms, whether it's election law, whether it's racial identity issues, those are bigger kill shots on the country than court rulings pertaining to administrative law and regulations. Essentially, the libertarian conservative movement and certainly the hardcore libertarians they're not bothered by the courts being used as a supremacist, supremacist crucial against our civilization on the civilization issues, the aforementioned issues we just mentioned, we just listed. They want to legitimize and cultivate judicial supremacism to strike down their stuff. In other words, they're not bothered by the Obergefells. They just want to harness the Obergefells for the Lochners. Right. If you if you if you're unaware of this, um, for those of you who have a lot of you know law school students who listen to the show, obviously a lot of lawyers. Um, but for those of you who don't know what Lochner is, it's it was an early 20th century decision um, by the courts, by the Supreme Court. It opened up this era called the Lochner era, where essentially they would use this notion of this right to privacy, this right, all these unenumerated rights, these extra rights. Remember we spoke about last week this this obsession on the pseudo right now about rights. And obviously rights where they're legitimate, we're all for like second amendment. That's where, you know, I think that's the glue that binds us all together, us and the libertarians. We we both agree on that. Some other issues, but they're very into adding on rights that, you know, might be important, but are they mandated by the constitution that could take away political issues and is it the role of the courts to be the final word on them? That's a different question. But anyway, in this Lochner era, a lot of this judicial supremacism of striking down laws and this notion that they, they're the final word in that and using this like private you know, rights and private privacy, which you know became the foundation for Griswold and Roe and Obergefell, that actually started ironically from Republican appointees who are pro-business and striking down like labor laws. For a lot of you who don't know, that's actually where it has its roots. It actually has its roots on the right. The left then co-opted it and used it for their stuff. So there's this effort now to revive this Lochner era, but also the philosophy behind it, that in the 14th Amendment, there's this substantive due process. That there's this unenumerated rights. You might be, again, scratching your head. Well, what does that have to do with process? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It has nothing to do with process. It's made up. But the, you know, it's the hocus pocus of words um, that the ju- ju- judicial legal profession creates. And that's where you have all these rights. Everyone has rights, a right to immigrate, a right. Everything's a right nowadays, except for, of course, what actually is. So 
they want to use it. It's not just that they want to legitimize courts as a veto power for laws that they don't like, which frankly, as conservatives, we will often agree with them on the policy too, you know, in the fiscal matters. But they legitimize some of the philosophy that undergirds what the left is doing to strike down our civilization. Well, it's equal, equal uh, women. Uh, women are men too. Uh, women are like men. Uh, yeah. Uh, substance due process. Right to privacy. Uh, what, huh? Yeah, but anyway, that's that's what these clowns do. Okay? So this is the concern on this libertarian, this uh, libertarian right. The problem now is this nominee that they picked for the second highest court in the land, Naomi Ray, there's a lot of concern that she is one of those. They're already tweeting out, she's the best on administrative law. Josh Hawley is raising concerns, and God bless him for being a freshman senator, not sitting down and shutting up, and actually fighting your party on a judicial nom, which is like nuclear warfare. It's like, wait a minute. He evidently has heard that she's she's pro-choice, and she evidently has said at some sort of time that while she disagrees with the opinion behind Obergefell, she was thrilled to hear it. Now, I know you could have someone who's, you know, open borders but doesn't agree with that it's mandated by the Constitution. They don't have a problem with killing babies, but they don't think it's in the Constitution. They don't have a problem or they're downright pro-homosexual, this and that, but it's not in the Constitution. But when was the last time you ever heard of a judge like that? Okay, when was the last time? You tell me. Even the ones that are officially pro-life, screw us, like Kavanaugh just did on multiple occasions. And then also he's concerned about some of her writings. In some of her writings, there are red flags that she writes about substantive due process and things like that. In a way, someone said, well, she's just describing it. She's not saying that's her opinion. She's writing legal theory. But she, the way she describes it is ways like, imagine if you would see an article from me. Um, okay, the LGBTQ people, like, no, I don't use their parlance. I don't use their way of thinking. It's a red flag. You have to understand the legal profession. That means you're a part of it. Okay? You might not be terrible. And I can't say she's going to be horrible, horrendous. But again, this is the one bullet we have. And it's not like, the thing is, sometimes you're limited, like geographically. It's a circuit. It's a geographical circuit. Let's say Ninth Circuit. A lot of liberal states. And then... They rotate it by state. So they have, it's not obviously statute, but there's, you know, unofficial rules they follow. It's a Hawaiian seat, an Oregon seat. So let's say you have a guy retire in Hawaii. Gosh, how many conservative just, you know, legal people are in Hawaii? That's very hard to find. But here, this is the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So you don't only get people from D.C. That's that's a court that you, you know, just take people from anywhere. I mean, really? This is the best you can do? Shouldn't we have certainty? See, they're going to defend, well, it doesn't necessarily prove. Josh Hawley is not saying that either. But it's enough to say, like, wait a minute. Are we sure we have this right to elevate someone to the most prominent appellate court who very much could be a Supreme Court pit that down the road, ironically, to fill Kavanaugh's seat when we just learned this from Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh was God. It was the end all for conservatives. 
It was the rallying cry for the election. And in just a couple of months, he screwed us three times. Two abortion cases, a, a global warming case. But again, demonstrating this adherence to this legal establishment way of doing things. And her writings smack of that. So she wrote um, in this article, Philosophers in the Court, Perhaps, however, extra legal sources can help judges to determine when a departure from past practice might be necessary. Philosophy might be a vehicle for legal change, but legal reasoning includes its own processes for change, and reliance on the past does not bind judges to outmoded principles when social and political understandings have evolved. I mean, dude, that's literally what's happening. Like we're going to talk about in a minute. Well, women are just as strong as men and they're just as manly, so we need to draft women. No, There's no feminine uh, qualities of, of people anymore. We're all masculine, except we're all not. Um, you know, guys with penises could go in female bathrooms. We've evolved on that. Um, even though in the fourth, when the 14th Amendment was written, they would have hung someone doing that. But, you know... We could say that they meant it magically as a time capsule in the words of the 14th Amendment. I mean, that's what they're saying. I mean, this is the single biggest problem we have, evolving on cultural understanding. And again, that's fine. You could evolve. So that's what you have legislatures for. Meaning if everyone suddenly, if, if the values of the 1800s are so outmoded, including like, you know, a man is a man, a woman is a woman. If we're for the decivilization agenda, at least we could vote on it in the legislature. I'm saying you don't have to do it in the courts and you can't and shouldn't do it. Social transformation without representation. But they're not, depending on who you are in this movement, if you're Cato, you downright support it. If you're a judicial crisis network and federal society, depending on the elements of it, you might not love it. They don't seem to focus on that and be bothered by it. They're obsessed with it. the Chevron doctrine, the Chevron doctrine, uh, the, the, the administrative state. Administrative, that, that, that's the new hotness. They're obsessed with that. Sometimes I'll agree. Sometimes I won't. That it's not the place of the courts. But be it as it may, there's one thing if you have a pro-Lochner person who's also going to be good on our issues. But they're sacrificing the key issues for their libertarian stuff. This is the problem that we're that we're up against. There's a couple of other writings where she writes about substantive due process. Again, I don't have all the details at the time of this recording. But I do know that Josh Hawley, who is, you know, he clerked for Roberts, ironically, and ironically, Naomi clerked for Thomas. But again, I mean, you know, not every Roberts clerk is going to be bad. Not every Thomas clerk is going to be great. Politically, And this is also very confusing because, you know, what happens when you have no conservative vision is the left is so insane they're always going to attack any anyone on the right, certainly any Trump judicial nominee. And, and this is where it comes in when we don't have a vision because we define conservatism by combating the left. So if the left's attacking someone, then they're conservative. Well, no, I mean the left could be attacking them for their reasons, but this is not the best we can do. And it was it was the same thing with Kavanaugh. Like, he became lionized by the right, but, you know, dude, <laughs> just because the left's attacking him doesn't mean we're going to, he was the best pick we could have gotten, which he clearly wasn't. It's the same thing here. So, Joni Ernst, who's another left-wing rhino, 
she attacked her because she wrote some sort of college thing in college about just date rape and how, you know, just very respectfully, um, certainly not blaming women as victims of rape, you know, like it's their fault, but just saying how, you know, in college, these women that get drunk and go out and aren't careful, they need to be careful. It was a very sane thing she wrote. So Joni Ernst, who's now the Me Too, you know, she's another one of those, like, you know, women in combat type of thing, but then, you know, women are victims too. It's like playing both sides of the fence type of thing. Uh, So she hit her from the left. So then, you know, everyone, you know, defended her or whatever. So... But again, Holly is is raising concerns. So Jonathan Swan of Axis was the first person to break this story. And um, you know, he said that that Josh Holly has, quote, deep concerns about Ray's judicial philosophy and has raised these concerns with key figures, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, White House Counsel Pat Sipalone. Whatever. I've I have a lot to say about him. All, all, all these guys are judicial supremacists. Um, I'm just going to read to you from the article what we're hearing. I checked with Holly and he confirmed what I was about, what I was told about him. He elaborated on his concerns in a phone interview on Sunday. I am only going to support nominees who have a strong record on life. To me, that means someone whose record indicates that they have respect for what the Supreme Court itself has called the interests of the unborn child, someone whose record indicates they will protect the ability of states and local governments to protect the interests of the unborn child to the maximum extent. And number three, somebody who will not extend the doctrines of Roe v. Wade and Casey, which I believe are deeply incompatible with the Constitution. Holly said he'd read Ray's academic work and was concerned that some of her writing suggested to him that she might be comfortable with substantive due process, a legal interpretation loathed by many conservatives that could be used to protect rights, such as the right to an abortion that aren't mentioned in the Constitution. Um, Holly told me that if there's evidence out there that Ray's, uh, Ray opposes a substantive due process, he'd like to see it. After Axios published the sneak peek newsletter on Sunday, another Republican senator reached out to say they had concerns about Ray's judicial philosophy and views on abortion. I don't know who that is. I can only speculate if it's Cruz, Lee, or um, or uh, Tom Cotton. Those are the only ones I could think of. But I, I don't don't quote me on that. I don't know. Uh, Holly added, "I have heard directly from at least one individual who said Ray personally told them she was pro-choice." I don't know whether that's accurate, but this is why we were doing our due diligence. And that's the point. You know, we just want a discussion on, shut up, this is a Trump nominee, you can't attack. And, and what's amazing, so Marjorie Dannensfeller, the president of a, a Susan B. Anthony List, a phony pro-life group. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, I was mixing up. A pro-life group also raised concerns about Ray with the White House. Um, but then she says she's no longer concerned. But anyway, I meant to say um, the Judicial Crisis Network blasted Hawley in an unsolicited statement. Ray is President Trump's nominee to the second highest court in the land because she's committed to the Constitution because she has a, been a warrior in President Trump's fight against government overreach. Notice, they keep, they're not, they're not refuting his claims. It's like the administrative state. Sadly, barely a month after moving to Washington, Josh Hawley is already acting like Claire McCaskill when it comes to judges. Instead of supporting President Trump's top judicial nominee, he is spreading the very same kind of rumors and innuendo and character assassination that Republican leaders fought during Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation. I mean, really, first of all, just put the politics aside, accusing someone of of rape versus raising concerns about, you know, as a conservative in a conservative administration and a Republican-controlled Senate that maybe this nominee is pro-choice. I mean, that's not, you know, 
politics of personal destruction, okay? Like, even if you disagree, say it. Notice they don't refute his concerns. They say, she's well-qualified. Oh, now Americans for Prosperity came out. She's fair and partial, extremely qualified. When does AFP ever get involved in judicial fight? I'll tell you when they get involved, because it's all the Kochs are obsessed. It's all the, the administrative state stuff. They'll never get involved. They weren't even involved with Kavanaugh. This is the problem. This is the problem. They all care about one issue now. The entire capital of this conservative legal movement, which is, I'm not making things up here. It's libertarian. It's not conservative. It's all into one area of law that they're obsessed with, with exclusion and often at expense of the civilization issues killing us. I want to know, you know, does she, Karen Henderson is one of the only good ones on that court. And by the way, the, the, the DC Circuit Court of Appeals has a super majority of leftists, of Democrat appointees. So anyway, it's broken. Anyway, we need judicial reform. They have like a seven, the, even, even after having some, they're going to have a seven to four majority. And again, I don't think the good ones are as, as good as the bad ones are bad. But Karen Henderson is one of the ones on the court. She wrote that famous dissent in the in the Garza case with this illegal alien demanding access to an abortion. And she was like, wait a minute. What happened to the plenary power doctrine? That if you're an illegal, you're not here at all. And remember that Kavanaugh kind of hemmed and hawed. He ruled the right way, but it was only because, well, we're not exactly blocking access to abortion. They were going to send her out to a third party so it doesn't run amok abortion president. And he's, and he's right on that point. But Karen Henderson was like, wait a minute. The antecedent to this is much bigger. And Kavanaugh confirmed when asked about this by Durbin at the com- at his confirmation hearing that he disagreed, didn't agree with Henderson. So I want to know, I want to know where she stands on immigration, on criminal law. On life. I'm sorry. What is this? All of a sudden, our side's like, you can't have a litmus test. What do you mean? The left has their litmus test. We see even when we have solid nominees, they turn on us. Certainly when you see, when you saying like, I'm hearing she's pro, like, is she pro-life or not? I thought we're, I mean, I thought that was a basic thing. I know we're, we're not going to have like only traditional value people like, you know, on gender and things like that. God forbid. But I thought that was, I thought it was pretty clear. It's only pro-life judges. I thought that was clear. Again, I understand in theory you could have someone who's not, but she'll be good judicial. She'll be who that person is. We're not proving 100% that she's bad. But if we're going to obsess and wait 10 years for this whole grand obsession, obsession from the Federalist Society and Judicial Crisis Network to get good judges on, shouldn't we be guaranteed who they are? They're not substantively refuting his claims. And again, they're not claims, they're concerns. If I have a judicial nominee coming in front of me, I don't know definitively, you know, but I'm going to raise concerns. Speak to me, talk to me. Tell me why they're not concerns. I'm very impressed with him. He needs our support. Call your senator if you have a Republican senator and express concerns. But I want to I make something very clear here. 
There's a point that needs to be made. If there's only one point you take away from the show, it should be this. Remember when Tim Scott, another pro-criminal, pro-open borders rhino, remember when he deep-sixed two conservative nominees on cultural questions. Oh, I, th- I don't think they're racially sensitive enough. I don't remember this phony, quasi-conservative libertarian legal establishment blowing him up that much. Now, I, I have to remember, I can't say definitively whether that particularly particular group, Carrie Severino for the Judicial Crisis Network, she might have put out a statement. I don't remember. I could verify that later. But I certainly don't remember this reaction when Trump nominees were attacked from the left. Somehow you can always do that. You can never raise concerns from the right because we don't have a right. That's not where the center of gravity is. We need to create it. We need a conference of like-minded people to get together for a real conservative gathering. I'm sick of this. And I think that was a good segue into just going over this judicially mandated notion that women are men too. I cannot think of something more radical both socially and both from a judicial standpoint, than to declare that it's unconstitutional for Congress to have some sort of registration process, potentially for a draft. Right now, there is no draft, but potentially it could be one day for men and not women. women. I want you to think about how radical this is for a moment. And I think it's important to, to remember that the two biggest issues that are killing us are this decivilization, left-wing culture war, and judicial supremacism. Those are the two biggest issues because they really encompass everything, and they merge. Meaning, we have the left-wing pushing radical, radical gender-bending. We have them pushing judicial supremacy, and we have the judicial supremacism being used as a tool to push the gender-bending. So meaning, it would be bad enough if you know you have a vote from Congress, have women be drafted. That would be bad enough. But they're doing it again, social rep- social transformation without representation. Um having this all it's all, it's all being done by uh by unelected judges. And that's what I'm saying, I think this case really embodies that more than anything else going on. Conservatives, we've retreated and retreated and retreated. Let's face it, we have nobody who fights for us on social issues anymore. And again, you don't have to be a social conservative anymore. We're not, we're not even fighting gay marriage. It's like, don't tase me, bro. Please don't force me to service it. Um, stop putting people that cut their balls off in the military and have, what, a 40-50% rate of suicide um, handling munitions and having the Pentagon paid for their mutilation operations. Don't kill babies. What else do I, and have us pay for it. And yet Roberts and Kavanaugh can't even hold the line on that. They evidently believe there's a fundamental right for private abortion entities to get Medicaid funding. And then, then we have the women 
the female draft thing. So this judge says the time has passed for that debate. We never even had a democratic debate on this. And he's saying the debate is over before it even commenced. Declares it over. So again, to be clear, this was, um, you know, it, 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 uh, it was just declaratory. It wasn't an injunction. So he was just declaring it unconstitutional. Um, but, but, but this is still nutty. This is nutty. And I understand there's all of you guys that are like, and I get your messages like, well, you know, if we're going to say women are this and women are equal, you know what? Let them draft. I get it. Sometimes like, you know, you have this argument. Well, okay, then just go, go all out. But again, that's a talking point. We, we would rather not do any of it. Okay, so let's not lend our support to, to forcibly drafting women. It is truly hard to understand how sick this is. I remember in the 90s when I came of age where conservative groups, you had Elaine Donnelly out there fighting the first female fighter pilots and, and any whiff of women in combat. And now all of this was done, by the way, administratively, never through Congress, under the Obama administration, opening up all infantry, all special forces, everything, not everything, women and everything, female pregnant Navy SEALs. We used to laugh about that. That's a reality. Okay. Nothing. Nobody will raise concerns about anything. The reality is, so be, be, so the the basically the rationale was, look, it doesn't affect us. I don't care. Um, as long as they can qualify, whatever. Okay. Now, first of all, as you well know, they've dumbed down the standards so much because it becomes political. The reality is this. Look, look, l- l- let's just be honest here. So if you have a couple of women that are out to prove a point, their whole goal in life is to show that they're as muscular and manly as men. I, I don't understand it, but but okay, there are those like that, that. That's their obsession in life. So fine. But we're not going <laughs> to... The social problems that it creates, you're not going to sit and have them in there when it's so few. And when you do that, it creates an institution. And inevitably, they wind up bringing in those that don't cut it. And that is happening all the time. And everyone knows that. But nonetheless, we're told, whoa, okay, if they cut it, fine. I certainly don't believe in that. I believe a country that sends its women out to fight for it is a country not worth fighting for. But nonetheless, so the the judge is basing on the notion that based on this 1981 court decision, that basically, well, the whole way to justify only drafting men is to say that they're not equal because they only serve in combat. But once you have women serving in combat, then, well, then there's no difference and you can't, have registration only for for men. That is absurd. Because there's one thing to say, you have a couple of manly women that are like, oh yeah, I want to do this, so fine. But to say that all women have to be that, that potentially you could conscript women and not view any difference. I mean, this is what is so insane how we don't put our foot down with that. There's one thing women say, I want to be like a man. All right. But like, what if a woman wants to be like a woman? What if she doesn't want to go into war and act like a man? What if she wants to do her thing? Is she not entitled to that? Is she not entitled to that courtesy in a country of 325 million? 
that if we ever had a draft, we fought two world war, war world wars, two theaters simultaneously without drafting a single woman. A country this size? Are you kidding me? I mean, you know what I'm saying? To- you could totally agree to the female in combat agenda. Anyone who wants to sign up, but just make it voluntarily. It is so radical what that does to society. Now, inevitably, people bring up Israel. A couple things about that. First of all, they started out as a country of a few hundred thousand men surrounded by people that were imminently annihilating them. Very different story than America. Two, whether they really needed to have women to the extent that they did, that they pioneered in combat, um, I don't know if that's necessarily true that they needed it. A lot of that was, let's not forget, you know, Israel was started by a bunch of Marxists. I mean, on these kibbutzim, they would have um, pictures of Stalin up. I mean, thank God Israel has changed over and it's become more religious in nature. It's it's moved to the right. But I mean, it started as a real leftist bastion. So, I mean, that's not something that I want to emulate. And then finally, it's a myth that women are absolutely conscripted without any way out. There is something called national service. The Hebrew word is sheirut leumi. It's a program that... um, you know, women could fulfill their service through that. Men, men have to serve in the military, but women could fulfill their national service obligation through this Sheirut Lomi program where it's like national service. They could work in a preschool, in a hospital, in a shelter. Well, you know, you, you get the idea, all sorts of things like that without ever being in the army, much less being in combat. So that that's a big point that needs to be made out. Like, you, no matter how radical, egalitarian, unisex you want to be, like you always have to leave an out for women that they want to be a girl. Like, I'm a manly woman. Okay, fine, lovely, but could could a woman be a feminine woman and not and, and be nurturing and not have to go on a killing field and try to be like a man and kill and get killed and whatever? Like, you know, like could we still have women like that in a society? I mean, this is the decivilization agenda. This was the Marxist thing to to cut off all familiar ties, gender ties where we are all unisex robots, words of the state. You know, some of these libertarians will email, well, I don't believe in a draft for men. It's such a straw man argument. Yeah, we don't need one now. I'd rather not have one, but you know, the the road we're headed towards, all of our, all of our security concerns that we're not ignoring while using and expending our military on things that aren't concerns, there's no doubt in my lifetime we're going to need more manpower. So once you put this, if you are going to agree to this ruling, it lays down the marker that if you did have a draft, this would be where it would head. This is a very significant moment. That a judge could just flick his wrist, just like that. And say, no, we, we've, we're now at the point where it's just as much a female obligation to engage in warfare as a male obligation. I mean, again, Put aside the cultural aspect, just for a minute, the notion that a judge could do that. But again, the notion a judge could erase borders, redefine marriage, redefine human sexuality, and there's nothing a judge can't do. So this is where we're headed on that. And conservatives have failed to put the brakes on any of this. On the licentious cultural decivilization agenda and on the judicial supremacist agenda. And in this case, you have the merging 
of those two vices. And by the way, while Israel pioneered putting women more and more in like dangerous positions earlier on in history, that ship has sailed. And based on what has happened the last decade in our military, we have totally leapfrogged them on that. So, you know, people want to bring up um, Israel, but what people don't notice is that the radical leftist, and that's the thing, the military brass, and I'm the only one willing to say this, although Trump said it himself, our generals have been reduced to rubble. The same generals that that don't view our border as a national security problem, but view Kabul's stuff as a security problem, that have no mission there, and just put our soldiers in a meat grinder. The same people that have no problem with the sex change operations of the military, and will even protest the Trump administration's decision to end that. The same people that 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 are, you know, pro-Arabist in the military, they're the ones that are shoving women into combat without Congress ever even voting on it. So they've long leapfrogged Israel in terms of what they're willing to do. Right now, officially, it's anything and everything. There's nothing off limits. Whereas in Israel, it's not like that. So I don't want to hear that example because that's nonsense. But again, you know, you could you could debate women, in, you know, who want to voluntarily sign up. But like this notion that there's no difference. The guy was like, "There's no evidence that that Congress did this based on physical capabilities." And well, what was his language he used here? Let me just dig this up. Um, he said it was something like overly broad stereotypes. You know, that the defendants, meaning the selective service in this case, or the defendants in this case, what they were saying smacks of archaic and overbroad generalizations about women's preferences. Are you kidding me? I mean, like, that's the whole thing with this women are men thing, too. Nobody could argue that to the extent you're going to have it, it's, it's, it's a certain number of women, okay? That the overwhelming majority are, you know, still want to be feminine. They are like that. They're certainly not physically capable of doing stuff that is considered elite even for men. And we're not going to destroy their bodies and their emotions and their entire livelihood because of this. I want to be very clear. This is a massive quantum leap from even what they're, they've been doing until now. To, to 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 potentially, and I understand there's no draft now, but what this does do is that if there would be, it would lay down that marker that there, there's no difference. I don't see women are men, and 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 that's what we're seeing when you don't put brakes on this. The consequences are insane. We see it from the other end. The men are women, men are women too. So we're seeing every single sphere of competitive female sports now being destroyed. Another big story everyone's talking about today. One in the state of Connecticut is high school track and field. You know, runners, the top two slots were taken by men who just deem themselves females, and that's it. Destroying female competitive sports. Getting back to this essay that was written by this judicial nominee about sometimes it being appropriate to revisit certain things that are based on um, what was her 
language that were that was based on uh you know outdated out um outmoded principles when social and political understandings have evolved there's nothing progressive about this there's nothing forward thinking about this what is so appalling think about this for a moment he based this on the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment representatives james f wilson he was a republican senator from iowa who is the chair uh, uh, congressman who is the chairman of the house judiciary committee who drafted you know all these reconstruction era stuff drafted the 14th amendment's equal protection clause he said emphatically that it was quote <clears throat> establishing no new right declaring no new principle it is not the object of the this bill to establish new rights but to protect and enforce those which belong to every citizen many many other members if you look into the congressional record said the same thing it was just taking the bare minimum life liberty and property rights that everyone had ensuring that black citizens had that as well as well as equal access to the court system but this notion that a single new right would be created could you imagine these people thinking that one day that clause would be used to say women are men too like yeah you see those guys with uh Big muscular arms as infantrymen. Women are like that too. If we have a draft, they have to go. If we as a movement cannot categorically call this immoral, categorically put the brakes on this licentious decivilization, left-wing culture war agenda, put the brakes on judicial supremacism, we have no movement. But then again, we have a movement now attacking the one senator who wants to raise questions about the cultural ideals of a Republican nominee. And he's being savage for it, whereas no such treatment was given towards those that attacked Trump's nominees from the left. This radical egalitarian progress. It's not the traditionalist libertarians that a lot of you might consider yourselves being a part of that. It's this progressive libertarianism of the Kochs. That is the conservative movement now. That's the most prominent elements. You're seeing this on jailbreak. You're seeing this on immigration. You're seeing it on the judiciary. Seeing it on the homosexual agenda. It's time for real men to stand up and be counted. Again, any country that allows... That, that, that forces women to fight for it is not a country at all. Any country that allows unelected judges to transform its society and decide every social and political question is not a country at all. It's time we speak the truth about all of this. It's time we gather like-minded conservatives and actually understand what the heck it means to be a conservative. It's not that we've lost our way. It's that we have now legitimized the most radical and harmful left-wing policies as conservative ideals. This is an Orwellian fake movement 
from CPAC to these judicial groups, these phony think tanks. If you want to know why we are where we are today, just look at who has been given the keys to fight for us politically. And that's what it is. It's not a matter of, oh, we're not properly vetting these nominees and we get fooled. I mean, there's some of that too. There's some of the fact that they get influenced by the judicial culture. They get too scared. But there's a layer even before that. A lot of the people guarding the gates here are the most prominent right-leaning legal figures. They agree with it. They're Cato libertarians. We might agree on health care. We'll agree on some issues. We'll agree on the Second Amendment. But among the most severe problems we're having from the courts are those issues where they're downright on the other side of. Others maybe are more moderate on it. They're not downright on the other side. They don't care enough about it, that they're not bothered by it, which is why you don't even see this outrage about this Republican George W. Bush appointee's ruling on the draft, which explains why Josh Hawley is now being attacked only in one direction for simply raising questions like, dude, is she pro-life? Could you tell me? Does she oppose substantive due process? Could you tell me? If you don't have those answers, if we can't look at a guy and know for sure where he's going to be on some of these things, I don't understand how you could push for it. I raised those concerns about Kavanaugh, and I was proven correct. So we're going to have a lot more on this story as it develops. There's also other problems, too, I didn't even get to with personnel. Lindsey Graham has appointed this pro-amnesty person as the top immigration counsel on the Judiciary Committee because now he took over from Grassley as chairman of the committee. I just don't have enough resources to deal with all this, but we're going to try to get that later this week as well as get back to some of our border discussions, have more guests on. We'll talk about, you know, hopefully tomorrow, about this Democrat resolution to disapprove of Trump's reprogramming of funds under a emergency declaration. It's a lot of things to say on that. But let me know what you think. dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at armconservative. Let me know if you think I'm, I'm off base here, but... We don't even know what it means to be a conservative in any way. We can't hold the line. And and I'm not saying this as a grumpy 80-year-old. I'm in my 30s. It was like yesterday when Republicans were tough on crime, tough on immigration, opposed the homosexual agenda, opposed the gender-bending agenda, opposed judicial supremacy. No, but they're good on the Chevron doctrine. What a bunch of fools. Anyway, before I get myself into trouble here... Thanks for listening. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.